Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, plays on and misses. Libba, 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 Libba. P-O-D-C-A-S-T Podcast 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 Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 22 of Americans Watching the Footy, our round 9 preview. I am Benjamin Castle, here in South San Francisco with my brother Ethan. We did that intro in one take! Let's go! We're off to a good start! And, of course, now that you said that, everything is going to derail from here. We are both kind of delirious. It is 3 a.m. as we are recording this, so hopefully we'll be staying on track. Thankfully, the magic of Adobe Audition and just me knowing what to edit out will allow things to seem a lot more seamless than they will be during this session. All right, round nine is upon us. No single standout game, really. There are maybe two or three you can make the case for. I think if you had to pick one top game this week, it would be St. Kilda against Geelong, just considering where your teams are on the standings. But how do you size this set of games up? St. Kilda and Geelong definitely catches my eye. I think this round schedule is a bit front-loaded. You got Hawthorne and Richmond as the first game in the Friday night U.S. slash Saturday Australia slate. Those teams are going in opposite directions, but have so those teams are going in opposite directions as of late, but have similar records and and could be really indicative of, and that result could be really indicative of where each team is heading within this season. But I am really fascinated by the first matchup this round. And so we'll get right into discussing what I have called as of late the lipinski Trelore Cup between Collingwood and the Western Bulldogs because of the players that have moved between those clubs the past two years. This is the lone Friday game for the round. Begins at 2.50 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Friday the 13th. 5.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. It's 7.50 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. This will be available, of course, on the Watch AFL app for non-Australian viewers. And that's going to be the only way that you can legally watch it live in the United States because it'll only be on tape delay on Fox Soccer Plus later in the morning of the 13th, 9 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Collingwood come into this game at 4-4. Four and four. They sit in ninth place. The Bulldogs 3-5. and five. Fortunately for them, they're still in 10th. They do have a good percentage at least, but not a lot's gone right for them lately as was evident in the loss to Port Adelaide. There was so much hype surrounding this matchup last season. It was the second game of the year, back in round one, obviously. Just wanted to clarify that. It was Adam Trelore's first time facing Collingwood, and the Bulldogs won that game by 16. Honestly, since then, I think Trelore has 
kind of underwhelmed, or at least either he's underwhelmed or he was overhyped at the time. I think it's mostly that he was one of the main guys going through the middle at Collingwood, especially considering Pendlebury was starting to shift more and more back, though that is definitely a development that has accelerated this year. Meanwhile, with the Bulldogs, Trelore is one of many, and he's not the guy that tends to dictate play. A lot of the times that's been Bob and Pelly, though he's now forward and he should be back for this one. Bailey Smith tends to dictate play. Jack McRae, when the dogs are at their best, seems to have control of things. Tim English is another one who's dictated play a lot this year, but we've learned that he will not be playing this week. He is recovering from the flu. Sounds like it hit him pretty hard. Alex Keith is expected to go. Former cricketer. His hamstring issue seems to be mostly resolved. And as you mentioned, Marcus Bonapelli will be good to go. Officially, he was being rested last week, so that makes me think, reading between the lines, that had it been a finals game, that ankle injury would not have been enough to keep him out of the game, but it would have been one of those where he was playing at less than 100%. So they were thinking big picture. They knew the risks. They ended up losing that game. I think they still understood the pros and cons. Now, while Bob and Pelly and Keith will be back this week, it looks like Latham Vandermeer could be out up to two months after tearing his hamstring. For that to only be a two-month injury is actually pretty fortunate. Cody Waitman's expected to miss about two weeks after breaking his collarbone. Mitch Hannon is still dealing with concussion issues. And Mitch Wallace, everyone's favorite fluffball, will be missing three weeks with a foot injury. Tim O'Brien is likely out a week or two with a calf injury, and it looks like Lockie Hunter should be nearing a return to the club from his off-field personal leave. Hope all is well there. We know he's had his issues in the past. I'm hoping because he showed some good signs last week, and you've got sort of a semi-personal connection there that Buku Thomas gets another opportunity. With the injuries there, even with Bottom Pelliot, I expect that he'd get another crack at it. It was in very good form in the VFL leading up to his call-up, and Waitman's injury makes their goal-kicking needs even more pressing. Jordan Sweet getting in as possible primary ruck over Stefan Martin. Martin, a surprising omission, although he's listed officially as being managed. Riley West was available as a medical sub previously this year, but this will be his first time in the full lineup for the Dogs. The Bulldogs have already confirmed that Luke Cleary, a defender who's got some pretty good interceptability, or is going to debut, that sort of presence was sorely missed at the Adelaide Oval last Friday, so seems like a pretty logical implementation. He's not enormous, he's 190 centimeters or six foot three, but same size as Tom Stewart. And I don't think people ever question if Tom Stewart's tall enough to do what he does. Tom Stewart is a lofty comparison. Looks like it's a comp more in build and less for skill set at this time. Looking longer term for the Bulldogs, their second overall pick, Sam Darcy, may play his first VFL game this week as well. Jack Ginevan will indeed be out sick. Caleb Poulter gets in the lineup while Trent Bianco is omitted. Notably, Aiden Begg staying in over Mason Cox this round. I don't know if that's more of a reflection on Beggs' potential or on Cox's lack of performance so far this year. Bulldogs favored for this one by seven and a half. That line has dropped a couple points, was as big as nine and a half. But I think now that Tim English's absence has been confirmed, that's been shaped accordingly. 
Depending on whether Ginevan ends up playing or not playing, we can see that move a bit back up, though. Just the spark that he's provided. It would mean a lot more responsibility on Brody Majacek, for sure. And maybe some of their more accurate midfielders kicking for goal, like Taylor Adams. And where in the world has Jordan Degoe been these past couple rounds? He's out of contract after this season. There was all sorts of talk, maybe just a few weeks ago, about how many teams might be courting him. I know Essendon was a prominent name that people were saying. But it seems like a lot of that talk has subsided or just been pushed to the back burner because he's only scored one goal in the last three rounds, a goal three. Regardless of who's going to make it onto the field for this game, I think it's pretty clear that the stakes are much higher for the Bulldogs. If Collingwood loses, your season's not over, you're four and five. This was a team without crazy high expectations. And I think unless they really fall off, they've pretty clearly answered we're on the right track and they're going to be back to playing finals football very soon, if not this year. Whereas the Bulldogs, if you lose this one, you fall to three and six. I know never say never, but their hopes of reaching the finals would be really, really bleak. I think this is a similar situation to their round three game against Sydney. That was something of a must win. This is something of a must win. And I think ultimately... As underwhelming as they've been at times, I think this is a game where, considering the circumstances, they will find a way. I like what they do with their backs against the wall. That round three game, also at Marvel Stadium, also like this one at Marvel Stadium, in case I didn't say it before, because I don't think I did. That round three game, which was also which was also at Marvel Stadium, like this Friday night, will be, was a contest in which the Bulldogs had control most of the way, but just couldn't make it count on the scoreboard. I could definitely see something similar here. So that's really an opportunity for not just none, but Thomas to really take charge in those forward lines and for Bottom Pelly to be as active again as he was in that first game at full forward. As has been common in the last few rounds, we'll have another five game Saturday coming your way. That gets underway at the MCG with two teams that call the ground home. Hawthorne and Richmond, Friday night all around the United States, 8.45 on the West Coast, 11.45 on the East Coast, and in Melbourne, 1.45 p.m. That'll get going. If you want to watch this game in the U.S. and don't have Watch AFL, well, hey, sucks for you because Watch AFL is definitely worth it. Not an official sponsor, but we'd happily welcome them because it's done us very well. But if you want to watch the game in the U.S. on TV, it is on Fox Soccer Plus. Specifically, the DirecTV guide says Fox Soccer Plus HD, which is a separate channel with a dash one at the end of it. So there's that. We don't have either of those because we don't need it for these games. Hawthorne enter at three and five in 12th on the ladder. Richmond four and four in the eight as of now on percentage over the team they defeated last round in Collingwood. These teams matched up twice last year, as they do pretty frequently, and they will match up twice again this year. The second meeting this year's round 22. Looking back at 2021, in round two, the Hawthorne home game, Richmond won by 29 points, and at an empty MCG to close out the season and Sean Burgoyne and Alistair Clarkson's Hawthorne careers, the two teams drew, and I believe Burgoyne had a chance to win it right near the end. For Hawthorne, positive side, looks like Mitch Lewis, Connor Nash, and Chad Wingard shall be ready to go. However, they're still playing it really safe with Changquath Jath, who is in line to miss 
a fourth straight game, and their defense has certainly suffered without him. It's not that they're completely rudderless, but it's very clear that he is the starting point for a lot of attacks with his running and roving ability. I think they really miss his intercept ability as well. Sam Frost seems to be the only other one who gets you more than one or two intercepts without Jaff. I know the numbers might show otherwise, but the only one who really makes impactful, noticeable intercept plays tends to be Frost. And Frost is more of a one-on-one guy. He gets tasked with a lot of the top forwards. Remember, he did a respectable job on Buddy for most of that Anzac Day game out in Launceston. But Jaff is more of a back zone type of player, and that makes sense considering seemingly infinite stamina he's got. Tom Mitchell being managed this week. Sam Butler is going to make his debut for the Hawks. Meanwhile, for the Tigers, Josh Gibkiss is now in protocols, and Bigoa Nyon, I'm going to guess it's pronounced Nyon, I feel pretty confident about pronouncing his first name as Bigoa, not as confident as about his last name. I saw one Instagram comment just calling him Big Onion, which, as long as he's okay with that, would be a pretty badass nickname, but my guess, knowing how South Sudanese names tend to go, probably pronounced Nyon. Spelled N-Y-U-O-N, he is in and is going to make his debut. Bigoa will mainly serve as a ruckman and defender. How he fits into Richmond's lineup will be one of the more interesting little subplots this week. Ryan Mansell was handed a one-game suspension for his actions at the end of the third quarter after Jack Ginevan jumped onto a pile, and Mansell was really the instigator of a lot of the extracurriculars following that. Riley Collier-Dawkins, Dion Prestia, and Nick Flostone are all scheduled to be back from illness, and that creates a bit of a squeeze in the back two-thirds. Collier-Dawkins is more likely to get the short end of the stick there, with Hawthorne only playing one ruck in Max Lynch. Mainly the opportunity for Richmond to go with just Toby Dan Curvis and sideline Ivan Soto in favor of keeping in Piggott, though it's nice to see Soto actually exist this past game had a couple good moments and was a solid second ruck throughout. I'm glad you mentioned Nan Curves because I was going to say that seems like an area where the Tigers are really going to dominate and take control of this game is there's going to be so much bigger and stronger and more experienced and skilled in the center circle. And I think it's going to lead to not only a ridiculously lopsided advantage in headouts, I think it's going to translate into clearances because in a lot of games, the Hawks have actually done a really good job dominating clearances in spite of losing hitouts, and I think that's a lot tougher against Nick Curvis. I just think Nick Curvis has had a fantastic season in general, and I expect that to continue here. I find Richmond likely to dominate in clearances, even if they do what they did last week and have Dustin Martin play a lot within the forward 50. I think they're already just stacked where they are. I think Jaden Short has done a very good job since being moved to the middle, has been a ground game leader consistently, as he was previously coming from the back. With that in mind, I think the line being Richmond favored by 16 and a half at this time of recording on Bovada makes a good amount of sense. I would agree with that, though. I wouldn't be surprised if Richmond wins by a bit more. The other thing that I think a lot of people are going to be asking about, and understandably so, is can Hawthorne actually play a good fourth quarter? Two of the last three rounds, their fourth quarters have been abysmal. Last week, giving up the final 44 points to Essendon. They got massacred down the stretch in round six against Sydney, but they've shown at times that they can play good fourth quarters. 
And they've done so against good teams like Geelong and Melbourne. And those are two teams that that tend to play at slower tempos. Hawthorne seem to be a side that really plays at the speed or just a little bit faster than their opponents a lot of the time. Think back to those two games against Geelong and Melbourne in comparison to the breakneck pace throughout their contest with Carlton. I think that becomes clear. So I think Richmond's best move is to push the pace and see if they can make Hawthorne run out of gas yet again. Speaking of speed, one guy who is likely not yet going to be back for the Tigers, but is nearing a return, is one of my 22 under 22 candidates, Hugo Ralph Smith. Looking forward to having him back out there. He's such a dynamic and entertaining player, and I think he's made a strong case to be in the team, even with them much closer to full health than they were when he had previously been included. A couple rounds ago, I would be looking at North Melbourne and Port, who are playing at Bluntstone Arena Friday night in the U.S. slash Saturday afternoon in Australia, and think, oh god, this game is going to be an absolute clusterfuck with no viewing merit whatsoever. Now, I still think this game will likely be a clusterfuck, at least for the ruse, but there will be some viewing merit, mostly in seeing if Port can keep things together and have their best game of the season yet. They built a foundation starting with their thrashing of the Eagles, but I thought they could have been a lot cleaner then. This is an opportunity for them to show that they have refined some aspects of their play against a club that is just about as bad as West Coast, if not worse. Now, I'm going to disagree with you a bit here. Because Port Adelaide are playing better and look like a competent team, I think this game becomes less appealing. That's definitely another way to see it. My intrigue, but that'll likely make the game less competitive. Do you think it would be funny if both teams were just terrible? In a cosmic sort of way, yes. Bounce time will be 9, 10 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Friday night, the 13th. That'll be 12, 10 a.m. Eastern. In the very beginning of Saturday, the 14th in the U.S. Fans in South Australia can tune in at 1.40 p.m. Australian Central Standard Time and local time in Tasmania and throughout the eastern states. It'll be a 2.10 p.m. bounce. American viewers can watch this game live on Fox Sports 2. I'll be back in Berkeley then, so I won't have a TV in my room as well. But if you've got your TV and your computer, I would say definitely have Hawthorne and Richmond in front of you on the computer. While every now and then just looking up to see, wait, has this game gotten out of hand yet in Tasmania? Or depending on what your setup is, just put Hawthorne and Richmond on the main screen and North versus Port Adelaide on the secondary screen. That's that's what he's trying to convey. He's just doing a crappy job of it. North enter this game at 1-7. and seven. They're in 17th. Port Adelaide up to 3-5, and five, sitting in 11th. These teams met at Marvel last year in round one, so that's our second round one 2021 game being replayed this round. Port Adelaide winning that meeting last year by 52, and it wasn't that close. Now, the good news for North Melbourne, who have been abysmal on all accounts lately, is that their offense can't be as bad as it was last week. A, they're not facing Fremantle, and B, Nick Larkey is back from suspension. However, the good news likely ends there, because Ben McKay is likely out at least a week or two with a knee injury, and Aaron Hall is still not going to be returning to the side for about the same time. Jason Horn Francis is out this week because of hamstring tightness, so, boy, you get to watch a team this week without McKay and Horn Francis. That's, uh, that's going to be loads of fun. Port Adelaide, meanwhile, should have Kane Farrell out of protocols. However, Trent Dumont has entered protocols, so he'll be out. May allow Lockie Jones to come back into the main 22. He's been the medical sub quite often this year. 
In terms of physical injuries, Riley Bonner suffered some ligament damage in his ankle. He'll be sitting this one out, and we'll see what his long-term prognosis is. There was talk that Charlie Dixon might come into the side this round, but it looks like both he and Orazio Fantasia will stay in the sandful for at least another week. What interests me about this game from a Port Adelaide perspective is I want to see how they utilize Sam Powell Pepper because he's been really solid this year in a variety of roles. I want to see which of those roles he takes on, whether he commits to more of a midfield spot, plays more up front in the attacking 50. I think there are a lot of different ways to deploy him, and as they've started to figure out their identity, that's gone really well. He is by no means the tallest of their forwards. You see... I would say Jeremy Finlayson is up there along with Ms. Georgiatis, though Finlayson is definitely built up more. Todd Marshall's also really thrown himself into relevance the last couple of weeks. And if he can continue this, I think he could prove that this recent stretch has been more than just a flash in the pan and something of a real breakthrough. Marshall was the next one I was going to mention as well. I feel like he and Powell Pepper will both spend a decent amount of time near the goal square. I attribute a lot of this good stretch for Marshall to him not needing to focus his energy toward ruck work with how Sam Hayes has been steadily improving. It really seems like Port Adelaide have found their identity and they just need to keep that line moving this week, keep that momentum going forward. I think there is a chance, considering how shaky they were early in the year, that they could take a step back. With how North's been, I don't think that's going to happen, though if you're looking at this from the standpoint of, well, they can't keep sucking this badly forever. Maybe they'll be able to put up a respectable game, make the power sweat a bit, and make us all question if Port Adelaide are really real or really fake, as we've done on this show a few times. Maybe we should have brought out the Allo Black Test last round form. It may make an appearance at some point. Port Adelaide favored for this one by 34 and a half. Don't have any real... Objection here, the main concern that I can see for Port is that they're already looking ahead to Geelong, in which case they may lose sight of the more immediate task at hand and what few intricacies of that matchup may present some trouble. I will say that the big issue in this one is going to be limiting hitouts to advantage. There's no question that Todd Goldstein and Callum Coleman-Jones are going to get the ball more, but it's on the deep midfield for Port to limit North's movement out of those ruck contests and to get the majority of the clearances themselves. I have a feeling that they may try to play Dan Houston a bit more forward in order to have more bodies near those contests. I will say Fremantle didn't have too much trouble with that last week. Maybe it's the teams are figuring out Coleman Jones and Goldstein. Maybe it's the absence of Tristan Jerry. Maybe it's just the teams have realized, hey, we can focus a lot of attention on these guys because there aren't too many other places where we'll be at a huge disadvantage. Difference is, though, they had Sean Darcy, who has well established himself as an AFL ruck. Meanwhile, Sam meanwhile Sam Hayes is a few games into it. As we career. said earlier, there's really no marquee game for this round. But I think if you had to pick just one match to focus on, I would point you towards St. Kilda and Geelong, which has the Saturday mid-afternoon slot in Australia nearly all to its own. The final three quarters should be completely clear. It's a 4.35 p.m. start in Melbourne at Marvel Stadium. That is 2.35 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Saturday the 14th, 11.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Friday, May 13th. This is another Fox Soccer Plus HD broadcast in the United States. 
Both these teams enter at five and three, with St. Kilda sitting in seventh, having lost two in a row. The Cats sit in fifth, having alternated wins and losses over their last four times out. They'll be trying to string together consecutive wins for the first time since rounds three and four. These teams will meet twice this year. They'll play at Geelong in round 21. They met twice last year, also meeting at Marvel in round nine. A game the Cats won by 21, what was an embarrassingly bad kicking performance for St. Kilda. Saints kicked 5-17 that night. And then they met again at an empty stadium in Geelong in round 22. A game the Cats won by 14, where St. Kilda played a much more stable game. The Saints may be without Dan Butler, who has a sore Achilles tendon after injuring it late last round. However, Jack Billings should be ready to return after rehabbing his hamstring in two VFL appearances. Marcus Windhager has been omitted. I know he's served as the injury sub at times. Naziah Wanganin Millera is being managed in favor of Cooper Sharman, and as expected, Jack Billings is in. For Geelong, both Joel Selwood and Reese Stanley are going to be in the lineup, at least as of now. As we've said, the Cats like to make a lot of late switches. But as of now, at least, both Selwood and Stanley are in. Cooper Stevens omitted. Francis Evans omitted. Jed Buse, as we alluded to previously, out injured. That means Mitch Nevitt gets to make a well-deserved appearance in the full lineup. He was sensational last week in his three-quarters of play. And I'm also really hoping that they continue to deploy Zach Guthrie in a defensive role because he really impressed there. And a lot of his midfield play has just led to a lot of very undisciplined turnovers. I think he's much more at home as a defender who occasionally can come forward and give you a goal because he's not bad in the forward 50. As I said in the round recap, the Guthries are the only case in the AFL currently where you got brothers playing together, but they have such different skill sets that they don't belong in the same line. And hopefully Chris Scott and staff finally realized that this past round because I think Zach was the most pleasant single player surprise for me in the entire round. Considering St. Kilda's got some really big physical tacklers, they can really mess you up. I think this is a game where Zap Tui's ability to slip out of tackles becomes especially important. And depending on the pace of this game, it's either going to be a really fast game that creates opportunities for Brad Close to run wild, or he could be the only one moving quickly in an otherwise slower game. Whatever way you slice it, I think he's going to impact this game profoundly. I sound like a broken record going on about him every week, but he's really been that good and that important to this team's success. I think this could really be a game of two Brads with not just Close having a huge impact, but Brad Hill potentially being his opposite in a way for St. Kilda, having a similar accelerating role down the wing. I wouldn't be shocked if St. Kilda were to try and push the pace this one. And I have no idea how much that will succeed. I think a lot of it depends on whether or not they decide to go more in the air or on the ground. I would expect the latter as a way to potentially counter Tom Stewart. Here's the thing, though. I like St. Kilda's ability to win marking contests against just about anyone not named Tom Stewart and maybe Sam DeConing because I think they've got a lot more muscle on them. The issue is that Max King hasn't been leading to the ball well. And if they try to kick a lot to him, he could end up being a sitting duck to Stewart or Sam's intercept or punch out work. 
I would be very unsurprised if Mark O'Connor is tasked with King. They could put him in more of a midfield role. I know they've put him on a lot of strong midfielders, so you could put him on someone like a Sebastian Ross, a Brad Crouch. A Jack Steele or Higgins, maybe. I think you really got to start him on King, and if someone like Higgins starts to take over the game, you can switch him there. But as usual, what O'Connor does is vital for this defense. Remember, they're going to be playing without Jed Buse this week. He is out with that concussion. Jack Henry's still out as well, so I don't see any reason to not have Zach Guthrie in that same role that he was in last week. Hopefully, not only does he follow up a good performance with another one, but I'd like to see that again out of Jake Kolajashny as well, especially with the depth in this defense being tested a bit right now. I think this could also potentially be a really good game for Brandon Parfit. I know I've called him out a couple times as someone who could really step up and take over. I think just his physical build works really well against St. Kilda. I think both he and Cam Guthrie could have really enormous games as well. It's a longer favorite by four and a half, and, and I can understand the line slightly tilting in their favor if they expect it to be, be a slower-paced contest, and if they doubt St. Kilda's kicking ability more than they do Geelong's. Neither team has been particularly accurate as of late, and there's also just the potential that the team that kicks more accurately will end up winning regardless of what the pace is. I'd like to see the Cats show the ability to close out a tight game. They did it against Brisbane. They haven't done it many other times. Collingwood was less a tight game and more a sequence of each team dominating a couple of stages, whereas I see the Hawthorne Fremantle games as sort of tight games where, yes, there were sequences where one team was able to create some momentum, but I see those more as the more conventional type tight game where Collingwood was more a memorable fourth quarter. And I'd like to see the Cats come out on top in a game that's really a dogfight throughout. And I think there should be an opportunity to do that this week. Don't forget, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy, where you'll see our commentary each round, plus other occasional AFL-related musings. You can find me personally on Twitter at Castle Media, A-A-S-S-E-L Media. And if you're a baseball fan, you'd be particularly interested in following Ethan because he's been covering a lot of San Francisco Giants games lately. Yeah, I've been working on a few feature pieces for the San Francisco Examiner. I am at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. I don't have the journalistic career that he does, but I'm on Twitter myself too. However, far more important in terms of social media presence is Ethan's cat, Brian Harambe, who is sleeping on Ethan's bed right now and can be found on Instagram at cat named Brian. Also, if you're part of the Australian audience or any foreign audience and you ever choose to visit the United States, do let us know whether or not you're coming to our area. We've been around the country a lot. We can definitely at least link you up with cool places to visit, places to eat, all of that. Don't hesitate to shoot a message our way if you're ever coming to America. Like last round, there like last round where there were five games on Saturday, there were three slots for them. Slots A and C don't have games that start right at the same time, but it's close enough. The game that starts earlier in that later window is Sydney hosting Essendon at the SCG. American viewers can watch this one on Fox Sports 1, and they'll be able to do that starting at 2.25 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Saturday the 14th, 5.25 a.m. Eastern, though the TV coverage will begin 
at the top of the hour, and the local start time in Sydney will be 7.25. Swans under this one on back-to-back home losses. They sit at 5-3 and three now in sixth place. The Bombers coming off just their second win of the year are at 2-6. and six. They sit in 16th. The idea last week was, all right, the Swans are going to shake off this loss, get things right. Instead, Gold Coast played a tremendous defensive game and was just better in pretty much every aspect. I'm still not sure whether the Suns won that game more than the Swans lost it. Even with how well the Suns played, I can just never shake the fact that they're the Gold Coast Suns, and I'll always have a lower opinion of them than nearly every team. I'm going to recycle my opinions from last week and say, okay, this is the round where the Swans get things right. They get back to form. They play well in every facet of the game. That said, games between Sydney and Essendon have had a habit of being close. They met twice last season. They met at the SCG in round four, and the Swans won by just three to improve to 4-0. They met at an empty MCG in round 20, a game that the Swans won by seven. And once again, they'll meet twice this year as they've got something of a rivalry. That'll be round 16, one of Essendon's rare home games at the MCG rather than at Marvel. Side note, maybe the least significant piece of information we could ever give you, that game that was at an empty MCG last year was originally supposed to be at an empty Marvel Stadium. I don't know what you could possibly do with that information, but just just putting it there. It's, it's on the table. It's kind of like, you know, the uh, pieces of lettuce that are just kind of like in the display counter at the deli with the meat that isn't going to do anything other than sit there, but it's there. I don't know why it's there, but... Seems kind of like a waste. In this case, I'm not wasting food, though. I'm just filling up space and dragging on and probably turning away some listeners. But the point is, this is a matchup that usually has a habit of being close, whether it should or not. Though I really do think this is a week where Sydney gets things back under control. All I know is that you are making my editing time longer and longer. And when I'm trying to get this episode out during my finals week, That is not ideal. So let's pick things back up here. Looking at the injury reports, Tom Hickey played VFL last week, rehabbing from his knee injury. As of now, looks like he should be in, at least according to Michael Whiting on the AFL website. And based on how productive he was in the VFL, would make no sense to keep him there, especially when he and Pete Laddams would be up against a ruck tandem on the rise in Sam Draper and Nick Bryan. One major surprise for the Swans, Hayden McLean being omitted. James Bell finding his way back in the lineup along with Sam Wicks and, as expected, Tom Hickey. Ben Ronk being omitted isn't too much of a surprise. I don't think people are making a huge deal out of Braden Campbell being managed. But Hayden McLean, that's a surprising one considering how prominent he's been for Sydney. That's clearly a sign that the Swans are not messing around in response to these last couple weeks. For Essendon, all those guys who missed with illness last week, including Matt Guelphie and Alec Waterman, should be back. That means a few of the guys who stepped in last week and put up pretty heroic performances likely won't be in the team, though they certainly made a case to be included when needed. It also looks like Nick Cox will be back from his ankle injury. Sydney favored by 22.5 for this one. I think that's appropriate, even with the way this game tends to be close. I get the feeling the Swans are going to unleash two weeks of frustration and Essendon's defense will likely struggle with the mix of Heaney, Franklin, and 
the whole Sydney forward line. I'm expecting a bounce back match for Errol Golden in particular. Very low numbers and very low effectiveness. Last round, I think he's going to be the ball moving force that he normally is once again. Chad Warner was probably the most productive of that young midfield bunch. And I think that the fluidity will just allow him to shine even further. Wonder if he might actually be apt to go more forward considering his finishing ability and, as you said, Essendon's defensive woes. Starting 15 minutes after the Swans and Bombers, you've got the Crows and the Lions at Adelaide Oval. So that'll be 2.40 a.m. Pacific, 5.40 a.m. Eastern, early hours of Saturday, May 14th, 7.10 p.m. local start time in South Australia, 7.40 p.m. in the Eastern States. This is a Fox Soccer Plus HD broadcast in the United States. Adelaide are 3-5 and five sitting in 14th after once again showing some promise early in the season and then starting to show similar signs of fading to last campaign. Meanwhile, the Lions are 7-1 and one having, guess what, demolished the West Coast Eagles at the Gabba. These teams also met at the Adelaide Oval last year, a game the Lions won by 52 in round 16. I do not understand why they form the schedule the way they do, that the venues don't alternate more regularly. I'm thinking about this, especially with the Lions, because they have yet to play the Eagles at Optus Stadium, despite that venue having opened in 2018. Well, I would say within these last couple of years, it makes a bit more sense because they haven't been able to have the full experiences what with various travel restrictions and capacity limits and things like that. You know, maybe this opens up another chance for Lions fans to actually see their team at the Adelaide Oval. But big picture, yes. Generally speaking, the travel matrix should basically have teams flip each year. And for example, if you're playing one of the South Australia teams at home, you play the other away. If you're playing one of the West Australia teams home, you play the other away, etc. That would make more sense, at least. I'm also wondering if more of their focus is balancing teams' time in Victoria as opposed to the other stage, which could be very plausible. Matthew Nix is officially dropping the hammer. He is not messing around after the last couple of rounds, couple of poor showings for the Crows. Billy Frampton a surprising omission. Riley O'Brien also omitted. Lachlan Gallant, that one's less surprising. Braden Cook and Harry Schoenberg omitted. So back in the lineup are Brody Smith, Darcy Fogarty, Jake Saligo, Kieran Strachan, and Ned McHenry. Smith, Fogarty, and McHenry, their returns were all largely expected. The Lions will be without Daniel McStay for the next three to four weeks. He's got an ankle sprain. Seems to be centered around his LCL. The question is, who comes in to take that spot? Could be noted YouTuber Mitch Robinson, whose videos I was watching just before recording this, actually. It was really cool to see some of the insider looks that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise, especially from halfway around the world. Eric Hipwood is, in fact, going to be on the team this week. Glad to see that he's quickly cracking the AFL side again. Excited to have him back in there. He was definitely among the first group of players that I recognized when I started watching footy in 2020. Obviously, McDonald, Tipping Woody was first, as we've said. Ben Brown followed very quickly. Hipwood was definitely in that next group. I think what made Hipwood so recognizable was the combination of his looks and the fact that he was on one of the most prominent teams. I think him and Charlie Cameron were the two that we latched on to the fastest. Yes, far more than Lockie Neal. Brisbane favored by 25 and a half for this game. I don't know what to make of this line. I wish I could say something more concrete. 
But on one hand, Crows at the Adelaide Oval. On the other, Lions have been in great form. Crows have been lousy lately. Crows got absolutely clapped at home a couple weeks ago against GWS. I just don't know what to make of this game. Some of their midfielders responded, okay, they were cleaner in a decent amount of passages last round, but they also gave up far more chances than they had themselves. Time for former Lion Ben Keyes to see if he can control the game for any portion against the team that delisted him just three years ago. I thought Tom Dude was really lousy the last couple rounds, and he's going to need to bounce back if the Crows are going to have any chance to pull off the stunner at home. Sunday, we'll have a triple header with some overlap between each of the games. First off, Gold Coast hosting Fremantle at Metricon Stadium, one of the longest trips in the AFL by mileage. This one will be televised on FS1 for American audiences. That game will get underway Saturday, May 14th, 8.40 p.m. on the West Coast of the United States, 11.40 p.m. on the East Coast. In Australia, it'll be Sunday the 15th. Dockers fans and anyone else in Western Australia that wants to watch this one can do so at 11.40 in the morning. Game gets underway at Gold Coast, 1.40 p.m. This matchup, this matchup is not one I had thought of as being significant at all going into this season, and I wouldn't have really thought about it that much going into round eight, but after the Suns pulled off the shock win against the Swans, I'm excited to watch how they may follow that up at home. It's also the Will Brody revenge game. So that'll add some additional focus on one player in particular. And we'll give the spotlight to a guy who, despite everything he's done, seems to have flown under the radar for a lot of the season with the other successes that the Dockers have had. Gold Coast are 3-5. and five. They occupy 13th place on the ladder. Fremantle are 7-1 and one at second with the best percentage out of those one-loss teams. These two teams played at Optus Stadium last year, so in this case, the scheduling actually makes sense, and Fremantle won that matchup by 27. One of the funny things about the Suns this year is that they've played their best against better competition. They played with Melbourne for all four quarters. They've got the wins over Sydney and Carlton. Maybe they'll just be that weird team where they kind of reflect their competition. If you follow college football, it's a little bit like Purdue has been over the last few seasons. Good news for the Suns, Noah Anderson should be back from illness. Charlie Constable seems to be set for his first appearance with the Gold Coast Suns. Best of luck to the former cat there. Bad news, Jack Lukosius, doubtful after suffering a knee injury. For Fremantle, they'll have a bunch of guys back from COVID, though they won't have Sam Switkowski. He's in concussion protocol after taking Jason Horton Francis's knee to the back of his head. Totally incidental. No bad intentions to it. Just ugly geometry. Those four that will be out of protocols are Rory Lobb, Blake Agers, Travis Collier, and Michael Frederick. And I feel the most pain for Jai Amis in this case because I feel like he's going to draw the short straw here despite very promising debut Joining the first kick, first goal club, and being another young spark on a team that has plenty of them. Should note that the amazingly named Nathan Schmuck of the AFL website makes it likely that Bailey Banfield will stay in the main 22. I think Banfield deserves to be in the lineup in full after what he showed last week. He was one of the most pleasant surprises from the 
COVID impacted team that took the field last week and still wiped the floor with North Melbourne. Question is, is that a one-off occurrence or is he going to find some consistency? Because he's been down and up at times thus far in the campaign. I've liked him just about every time I've seen him. So I think he's going to have another impactful game. One of the things that tactically gets me interested in this matchup is we've seen Gold Coast do a lot through the middle of the ground this year. And Freeman's a lot of their strength is on the wing. Unfortunately, we have learned that Nathan O'Driscoll will be out roughly six weeks with what is being considered a hot spot in his foot. Now, that's similar to the language that the Ruse used when they talked about Tristan Jerry. That was, as it turned out, bone stress detected in his foot. So maybe some sort of a stress fracture there. Usually when you think hot spot in someone's foot, it's like an area where a blister's flaring up. And that doesn't seem to be something that would merit a six-week stint on the sideline. So I think we can safely assume that whatever happened to O'Driscoll is not just a blister. And I guess that means most likely Fremantle will need to play more through the middle because he's been so good playing along the boundary. And it's a darn shame because I really would have liked to see how he would have matched up with Matt Rowell in that hypothetical matchup. Dockers are favored for this one by 10.5, which I think respects the performance the Suns put up last week, as well as how Gold Coast have played overall against better competition. But tactically, I don't think the Suns stand much of a chance because Fremantle puts so much pressure on your back line, and I don't think Gold Coast's defenders are going to be able to handle that. However, the more they let Isaac Rankin play to the back, the more they'll have mobility to get out of those spots. And I thought playing Rankin back there was a huge reason they had success against the Swans. They played him further back. They played Lockie Weller further forward. And it laid a surprisingly effective foundation for one of the more shocking wins that we've seen from any team so far this season. It was also just a matter of Stuart Dew knows how to match up against John Logmire and how much of his adjustments were for that contest alone because he's been able to succeed against the Swans in particular. However, I can see some similarities between the Swans and the Dockers style-wise. They may not have a huge forward target, but with the speed they have going through the middle, there's potential for the same strategies to work a second week in a row. Plus, if Stuart Dew squints really hard, he can pretend... I have absolutely no idea of what to make of the middle game of the Sunday action or the late Saturday action into Sunday in the United States. That being Greater Western Sydney playing just their second game at Giants Stadium this season. They'll be hosting Carlton starting at 10.20 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on the 14th, 1.20 a.m. Eastern on the 15th for our American viewers who can see this on Fox Soccer Plus in addition to watch AFL. It's a 3.20 p.m. start at the showground. Giants under this one, coming off a really disappointing performance in Canberra against Geelong. They now sit at 2-6. and six. The Tom Green fan club did them no favors. The Blues are the only team with a 6-2 and two record, so they sit in fourth place. These teams met twice last year and will do so again this year. Also scheduled to battle at Marvel Stadium in round 19. Last year, they played in round 14 at Giants Stadium, where the Giants won by 36, and then closed out the season at an empty Marvel Stadium, where GWS won by 11 and officially clinched a finals berth, one that they were in good shape to get anyway, because West Coast would have needed to win at the Gabba. Yeah, good luck. But they officially sealed it and made sure to take matters into their own hands. And they also sent David Teague out with a loss. 
So they may have actually ended up doing the Blues more favors in the long run than themselves. Well, he might have been as good as gone anyway. Who knows? That club has such confusing inner workings to me. The inner machinations of the Blues are an enigma. The one real positive from GWS out of their game last week against Geelong was that they came out of it without any major injuries. Brett Daniels is closing in on a return. While no injuries are going to force Leon Cameron's hand, Tanner Brune and Jake Riccardi have both made cases in the VFL to get back in. Riccardi to the tune of nine goals. And Josh Fahey could be nearing his debut. Connor Stone into the GWS lineup, at least the preliminary squad. They haven't fully narrowed things down yet. For Carlton, Lockie Plowman is eligible for selection after return from illness. A couple calf injuries. George Hewitt's status is to be determined. He may be in line to return in this week, in which case he may slot in for Jack Martin, who suffered a minor strain and will be out one to two weeks However, just before we start recording, I guess this is the benefit to recording as late as we often do. We found out that Harry Mackay tore his meniscus, and that will put out one of the leading goal kickers of the competition the past few years and the reigning Cohen medalist for six weeks. That news shifted the line on this game by four points. The Blues went from being favored by one and a half to the Giants being favored by two and a half. I think that's a pretty fair place to put this just because... You don't know what GWS is going to give you, so you know, stick the line somewhere in the middle, and I think the money will roughly fall 50-50 on it, and that'll benefit the odds makers. Jesse Motlop lined up to make his debut for the Blues. He is the son of Daniel Motlop and the nephew of Port Adelaide's Stephen Motlop. This is a game that I just refuse to touch. As a better, the Giants have been so erratic, and I can totally see them following up a super poor performance with one that's the polar opposite. At the same time, this is a chance for Charlie Kernow to have a second really good performance in a row. And against a Giants defense that remains depleted, I think there's definitely a good possibility for that, even with the extra attention that will be placed on him in Mackay's absence. If you're, want- if you're wanting to look for a second guy behind Kernow to really have a big scoring game, I'd say Matthew Kennedy might be the best pick. Outside of Isaac coming, I was really unimpressed with the GWS defense last week. Lockie Whitfield vanished after his good performance against Adelaide, though he ended up playing more forward because of his success the prior round as well. Connor Iden was basically nowhere to be found, and I liked his performance for much of the season. It's certainly a bit easier to defend Carlton without Harry out there, but I don't know if the Giants will even be able to handle a depleted Blues front line. That said, every time you doubt the Giants, they shut you up with a great performance, and any time you expect something out of them, they shit the bed, so maybe expecting nothing? I don't, I don't know. What happens then if we have no expectations? I guess we just move on to the last game of the round where the expectations are very clear. The West Coast Eagles are hosting Melbourne at Optus Stadium. This one will overlap with the end of GWS and Carlton. And please, unless you are a Melbourne fan or a masochistic Eagles supporter, keep your TV on the Giants of the Blues. The bounce time will be bounce time will be 12:20 a.m. Pacific on Sunday, May 15th. That's 3:20 a.m. Eastern, 3:20 p.m. local in Perth, and 5:20 p.m. in the Eastern States. 
There will be no live U.S. TV broadcast. It will be delayed on Fox Soccer Plus. So if you want to see just how bad it ends up being, you can watch that at 5.30 a.m. Pacific, 8.30 a.m. Eastern. Hopefully they edit out some of the more gory parts for the more sensitive audiences. May very well be necessary with West Coast sitting pretty firmly at the bottom of the ladder, 1-7 and with a worse percentage than North Melbourne, and with Melbourne being Melbourne looking for their second straight 9-0 start to a season. These teams also played at Optus last year in a game that got moved from a Saturday to a Monday to accommodate Western Australia's ridiculous quarantine rules. It was the second Eagles game that ended up getting moved for that purpose, and it was the second of those that ended up competitive because West Coast and Richmond were brought forward around during the during the bye weeks so that the Tigers could return home. The game also ended up featuring a lightning delay that took about half an hour. Ultimately, the Demons won that game by nine. We found out some news on the injury front. There were concerns about Max gone with his knee. Seems to be okay to the point where if they choose to rest him, it would just be kind of a conservative, prudent decision, which would make sense considering the quality of competition. And the fact that they honestly should start looking ahead toward the massive clash against Fremantle in round 11. Considering that they play North Melbourne next week, they can definitely parcel out their time figure out who they can manage. Jake Lever's been dealing with a quad issue as well. He could certainly play, it sounds like. Both he and Gon would be able to play if needed, but what's the rush? This is a time when you could probably sit one or both of them. You expect the same sort of circumstances next week. Also looks like Christian Salem is a week or two away, so he should be back in time for that battle against the Dockers going to be a tough squeeze for them defensively to try to figure out who ends up going down to a sub role or the VFL. Harrison Petty was a kind of was a guy that we initially expected might be in that tough spot, but with how he's played the past couple weeks, that's just going to make Simon Goodwin's decision all the more harrowing. Meanwhile, for Adam Simpson and the Eagles, the COVID mess from last week means that a few players should be exiting protocols around game time. The seven nightclubbers were fined 5000 Australian dollars with half of that suspended, but none of them were explicitly banned for any games by the club. However, there is a new COVID out, and that's Elliot Yo. We thought that he may have been in after a concussion, but he can never seem to find the field even when there's nothing else wrong with him physically. Luke Shuey remains out, nursing his hamstring injury, as does Willie Rioli. As our resident Eagles fan, I want to know... What do the Eagles have to do in order to defeat the giant monkey man and save the ninth dimension? Ethan, gotta think smaller. Fine. Can they defeat the little monkey man, save the eighth dimension? I don't think they can even defeat the microscopic monkey man and save the seventh dimension or any other. I'll go into this matchup wondering how bad can it get, and I have no idea what kind of pace Melbourne are going to take because they should be able to pile up the points either way. They're a team that tends to be very slow and methodical out of the back, but with percentage at a premium against the Eagles, maybe they want to push things a bit just to get a couple more chances on goal in before the sirens. This discussion obviously isn't about are they going to win, and and it's about and it's about how will they pile it on and by how much will they win. My thinking is they try to score a bunch early and then slow the game down. 
Hey, worked against St. Kilda. Should work against just about anyone with that, considering that result. What do the Eagles have to do for you to consider this game a success? Is there a certain number of goals they need to score? A certain margin they need to stay within? Is there any sort of tangible measurement that you can use to grade this game? Or is it just going to be which players look good, eyeball test stuff? Well, the past three weeks, it was four, then eight, then four goals. So maybe they're bound for eight again. I find it hard, though, to look at team success of this one between the couple key players that are out and also just the complete lack of promise in the current side. Would be more than happy to see the top-ups necessary again because I think they provided the greatest spark and hopefully the Eagles would be able to use that to their advantage in this year and beyond. However, I fear that some of those performances might catch the eyes of other teams who might swoop them up as early as the midseason draft in a couple weeks' time. At least the line for this game isn't as bad as it was against Brisbane. It's Melbourne favored by 56.5 at the time of recording. I think that's just a product of the pace at which these teams play rather than one of those top teams being better than the other. I think this could be a historic defensive performance for Melbourne in terms of how little... West Coast is going to score. This could be really, really ugly. Fremantle allowed just 24 to North last week. What's going to happen here? Yeah, that's another potentially really unpleasant side to this contest. I'm trying to look at this through as rose-colored as I can get my Eagles fan glasses. But with only Kennedy really providing the spark from the Premiership crew, with Liam Ryan not having his usual energy a lot of the time, with Willie Rioli being out, their goal scoring could end up being drier than the Gobi Desert. On that very optimistic note, that'll do it for our round nine previews. Last round, a couple of our predictions were way off, especially my prognostications on the Sydney Gold Coast game. Let's see where I can look stupid this time. Don't forget, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find me, Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. You can find me at BenjaminHK01, and this week in particular, I'll probably be posting a batch of photos because I am graduating from UC Berkeley on Saturday. Show off. And you can find Grind Harambe and whatever pictures Ethan, his dad, decides to post of him at cat named Grind on Instagram. He's currently sleeping right next to me. He's been very good during this entire episode. A lot of times... There are segments of the episode that we have to cut out because he's making a bunch of noise or I have to get up and let him in or out of the room. It was a nightmare a couple nights ago when we recorded the round eight recap. So thank you, Brian, and thank you, the listeners, for tuning in and sharing our love of this very wacky sport. And thank you also to the producer of this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, me. I don't know how I do it while I'm juggling all my coursework as well, but thankfully that's coming to an end soon, and hopefully that means starting with the next few episodes, things will be pushed out sooner and sooner as well. Regardless of when this gets pushed out, regardless of when you end up listening, thank you very much for tuning in to Americans Watching the Footy. We hope you'll interact with us on those platforms, and we hope you'll tune in again next time. this trombone playing for a special news bulletin. Leon Cameron has resigned from the position of head coach of the Greater Western Sydney Giants, effective the end of this round. Thank you, Realistic Fishhead. We finished recording, we were tidying everything up, set to finish the editing process, release this episode, and 
major news drop. So, what do we make of this? Well, he calls it a good decision, and with how the team was going at the start of the season, the writing was on the wall that his contract would not be renewed. Surprised that he wouldn't want to stick it out, but maybe that's less common in Australia? Maybe this is him trying to give Mark McVeigh, a longtime assistant coach for him, a chance to show that he's worth keeping full-time. Though, I wouldn't be surprised if the Giants decide to completely start over with an outside hire. Cameron was with the club. Since the beginning, he was an assistant under Kevin Sheedy for the first two years before taking the head coaching job ahead of the 2014 season. Obviously has that 2019 grand final berth on his resume. And all of the big, big sound memes that that run spurred, which was the real highlight of the whole thing, the real legacy of it, looking back on it now. I'm not a fan of the timing of a midseason resignation like this. But if it's to give McVeigh a shot, I understand. I just don't like the look overall of a coach stepping down midseason. Looks like a bailout. It does. The captain should be the one to go down with the ship. On that note, though, it was clear that he was going to be out at the end of this year. That was pretty obvious for a while. I also learned that the Giants CEO is named David Matthews. I wonder if he's also been part of a band that has songs with really funny names and also once dumped poop on a bunch of people that were on a boat touring Chicago. Now, of course, the talk becomes who's going to be that third permanent head coach for Greater Western Sydney. Of course, Alistair Clarkson's name is the first one that pops up because he's going to be coaching somewhere next year. You think that this might actually be a reasonable fit for him if he wants to be in a place where he can win quickly. It's clear that the Giants have the raw talent. We say that about a lot of teams, but with how recently the Giants made their run, it just strikes me as even more disappointing and odder that they couldn't corral this season, even with Toby Green being out for the first five games. Here's the thing. I think if Clarkson was to come in, it would give him a chance to try to piece something together with the current core, which isn't exactly a super young group. I wouldn't say they're old yet, but most of this core, most of the key pieces other than Tom Green are aging a bit. So it's kind of a now or never with this group. And then he can kind of commandeer and oversee a rebuild if he has sort of a long-term vision for the club. Now, it's also possible that he doesn't want to go through a rebuild and would rather just be in a situation where it's win now, win for the next few years, and then right off into the sunset. That's totally possible and understandable. In the end, if he wants the job, he'll clearly get it, just a matter of what direction he wants to take. My head is also spinning now thinking about the caretaker coaches that have shown their worth, Jamie Graham and Adam Uze of Fremantle and Melbourne in particular. One thing that Cal Toomey, I think it's Toomey, I flip-flop back and forth between Toomey and Tommy, but Cal, if by some slim chance you're listening to this, please let us know. Really like reading your stuff. Think you're one of the best covering this sport. Really appreciate what you do, and we use you commonly as a source of information. He alluded to how last year the early decision with Nathan Buckley at Collingwood kind of sparked other teams moving the gears quickly as well, such as Hawthorne with lining up Sam Mitchell before anyone else could snatch him up. So maybe the Giants are trying to get a head start on this. Maybe this was more of a mutual agreement where Cameron met with people and was told, we all know you're not coming back. We'd like to get a head start on this process to put the club in a better position long term and have our pick of all the candidates. And if that's the case, 
totally understandable. I just want to see if this creates some sort of snowball effect at other clubs. I think in turn, that could also mean keep an eye on the West Coast Eagles over the next couple of weeks. I was about to say, I would not be shocked if whatever Grim Reaper is in Australian football lore is creeping up toward Adam Simpson's door or Stuart Dew's door. How about this? This could big picture be a lousy time for Port Adelaide to be getting their things in gear, getting their act together, because say they weren't all of a sudden on the verge of respectability and relevance again. Say they were, you know, one in seven instead of three and five. Say their only win so far is the Eagles. They might be looking at this and then realizing, all right, we got to get a head start on this thing. We've got to find someone new because Hinkley ain't it. Let's go after this while we still have a full array of coaches to choose from. Now, of course, Hinkley could be coaching to save his job. And more than anything, they look like a team that has finals aspirations again. And in turn, you wouldn't interrupt that sort of a run by all of a sudden saying, sorry, we're completely shuffling the deck. We're going to wipe this thing clean and go after a new coach instead of try to pursue what we've got right now with this group of players. I had thought... After those first few rounds, that port looked like a really good option for Clarkson if he wanted to be in win-now mode. So I think these next couple rounds and port's results heading into the bye are going to determine a lot in terms of their longer-term future. Just through exploring this and paying attention to everything, it seems like the main focus of this is really on the bigger picture rather than just what it means at GWS, what it means for other clubs that are going to be in coaching searches, like you mentioned, Gold Coast. We'll see if there's any fallout at any other clubs this year, if they turn for the worse. At this point, though, we're doing a fair amount of prognosticating and far too many hypotheticals, even in a round preview. We'll definitely have more to talk about directly pertaining to GWS after they take the field against Carlton this week and going forward. This is a conversation that is likely going to be more fitting in either a couple rounds time or whenever other clubs start making similar coaching staff decisions. So we're going to leave this conversation here. We thank you once again for tuning in to Americans Watching the Footy. By now, you should know where to find us. If you're listening up through this point, you've listened the whole way. So you know what's up. You know where to catch us. Come engage with us. We enjoy the conversation. Thanks a lot. See you soon.